Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verses 8 through 10. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and it is our joy to study it, to live it out, and to be transformed by it. We thank you that you sanctify your people through your truth. Your word is truth, and we love it. And so we pray, Father, for your spirit to continue to help us to worship you in response to this scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. A man approached a Little League baseball game one afternoon, and he asked a boy that was in the dugout how the game was going. And he said, oh, we're losing 18 to nothing. He said, wow, you must be pretty discouraged. And the boy said, well, why should we be? Uh, We haven't even got up to bat yet. (laughs) Interesting perspective there. Well, there are a lot of reasons that people have for being discouraged. They can be discouraged by their past. Maybe they have blown it so bad in the past, or maybe their parents have blown it so bad in the past, they feel like they've got a chain and a ball anchored to their leg, and uh, they just cannot escape from that uh, chain and ball. But we're going to be seeing uh, later on in the sermon (coughs) that you do not have to be trapped by your past. Your past does not determine uh, the future. Uh, And then there are others who are discouraged over the present. They think that things are so bad in America that they throw up their hands in despair. They say it's far too late to fix anything. But you know what? The city of Nineveh is uh, one of many testimonies in the Scripture that no matter how bad things are in the present, God can completely change the present to the point uh, where everybody is given a new lease on life. So don't get discouraged over the bad present. Some people are discouraged over the future. They're so badly in debt that the future looks really, really bleak. Or their eschatology is so pessimistic about the future that they don't have the faith to expect great things from God or to attempt great things from God. Uh, All you have to do is look at uh, people like the thief on the cross. He had a pretty bleak future, didn't he? And yet, because of his conversion, everything was changed. And he was able to say to Christ, remember me when you come into, my, into your kingdom. And so it really is not the fact that, uh, of how bad the past or the present or the future is that discourages us. It's our view of the past, the present, and the future that I think either gives us incredible faith or incredibly discourages us and makes us want to give up. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to encourage you to have your perspective transformed by God's view of the past, the present, and the future. Really, these are three remedies to discouragement. The first one that I want to encourage you with is to be driven by the future. Take a look at verse 8. The end of a thing is better than the beginning. How much time do we spend looking at the end that God has in view? How much time do we spend planning so that we know our own end that we're, that we're planning for? How much are we driven by the promises of God for our future? 
uh, individual eschatology, God's plans for our, 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 our sanctification, and cosmic eschatology. Both of those can be incredibly encouraging or they can be discouraging. Let me explain the meaning of that term end. Um, in the olden days, the old books that I have, they use this all the time. Uh, the theologian Gerhardus Voss in his Pauline eschatology does a seven-page word study on this, and he shows that the meaning of this word end means the outcome, the end product, or the goal being aimed at. So Solomon says that the end result, the goal that you are shooting towards, is far more important than any of the steps leading up to that. Now, he's not saying that beginning a project is unimportant. Of course it is. But in comparing two good and even two essential things, he is saying the end is far more important than the beginning. Um, I guess maybe I should summarize the first point this way, saying, sorry, folks, if uh, you don't like planning, this first point's going to be discouraging. (laughs) No, it won't be discouraging, but it's going to be prompting you to say, this is talking about planning, pure planning. God is a planner. He expects us to be planners, and we can never be driven by the future if we are not planners. And if we are constantly preoccupied with a whole series of beginnings, instead of looking to the end and all the steps that lead up to the end, if we're always with the beginnings, we're going to be driven by the tyranny of the urgent. You know, I'm working hard on Project A and it's not finished, but Project B's deadline's already approaching and somebody calls me on the phone and there's this urgent thing, that pressing thing, and the kids are pulling on my pant legs. And we end up getting a whole lot of urgent things done, but it's at the expense of the important things because the important tends to be way off there. Okay, it's not pressing on me right now. I can procrastinate with that. And so this is a thing that we tend to fall into sometimes. I tend to fall into it. Even this past week, it was very easy. It was tempting to be driven by the tyranny of the urgent because there was all kinds of urgent things I had to deal with and, and not to be focused on the end. God wants us to be always driven by the end. We're going to be looking at this in many different ways, trying to help you to understand it. The same Hebrew word is used in Proverbs 14, verse 12, where Solomon says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. See, the beginning of our ways sometimes seem easy. They seem sweet. In fact, most sins are that way. That's why they're tempting. Proverbs 1 uh, talks about the end result of a thief. You know, theft seems like it's uh, very attractive initially, but he paints a picture of misery down the end of the road. And he does the same thing with adultery. He says, yes, it may be tempting initially, but in Proverbs he says, For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps lay hold of hell. Well, that's an eschatology of sin right? It's showing you what the end result of that sin will be. And if you go on, keep reading what Solomon describes there, it is horrible. In fact, if the adulterer could see how horrible the end result of his sin was, whoa, it would not be attractive even at the beginning. Now, he would, he would want to steer clear from it. But the problem is beginnings are deceptive. They don't look at all like the end. And to the degree that we give into sin, we are being present-oriented not future-oriented. Now, beginnings aren't just deceptive for evil. They're deceptive, really, on, 
on most things in life, even good things. For example, if a person didn't know a whole lot about horticulture and he saw a farmer throwing all of this grain away into the ground, he might think, you're wasting that food. We've got to eat that. We've got to save that. And the farmer's saying, no, we're going to have a whole lot more if we plant this grain. He understands the harvest. But people who are incredibly present-minded don't understand that. When my brother was uh, doing famine relief out in Ethiopia, uh, he gave um, plenty of food for, to last them for the year, plus seed grain for the next year. And they instructed them, do not eat the seed grain. This is your food for the next year. What did they do? They went and partied for you know, a couple months and used up all of their seed grain. They had nothing for the future. And so there are some people, even on harvest, you know, are not future-oriented at all. Now, on the other hand, if we have considered the end, the goal, and, and, and we've considered it by way of planning, we've done real good planning, here's the goal that we have in mind, we might not start a project even though it's a wonderful project. It's a beautiful project, and the reason we don't start it is we realize we don't have the resources, we don't have the energies to do that. It's exactly what Christ was talking about in Luke chapter 13. He gave the parable of a man who wanted to build the tower, but he couldn't finish it. So he's halfway through this project, and there is this half-made tower sitting there forever as a memorial to his lack of planning. Because we are limited creatures, we need to decide which projects we will begin, but we can't decide that if we haven't done all of the planning necessary to determine what are the steps, what's the end result. Planning is absolutely essential. So for every project that you are engaged in, you should be able to articulate your reason for doing it your goal, or what Solomon says, the end of the thing. You've got to be able to articulate that. Edward Dayton said, if you don't care where you are going, any road will get you there, and it really doesn't make any difference how much time you take. And I think that's, that's very true. Uh, for those of you who are driven by the present, you really need to start planning. It's hard. It, it seems like wasted time and wasted effort. Now, of course, this takes patience, and that's the second phrase in verse 8. It says, the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. To be future-oriented takes patience. Whether you're a farmer or whether you're planning for your grandchildren, which the Bible commands us to, to do, it takes patience. It also takes humility because we realize, wow, there is so much to do. I'm not even remotely where I should be. It's constantly making you recognize your creaturely limits, your dependence upon God. Those who are driven by the past or even by the present tend to be proud in spirit. Why? Because they're not preoccupied with what could be done. They're preoccupied with what has been done. And we can sit on our laurels. We've accomplished enough in the past. That's where their focus uh, is at. So I think you can see how those two phrases in verse 8 really do fit together. Americans are becoming increasingly an incredibly present-oriented society, incredibly present-oriented. We don't care about the past. How many people even know the history of America? Very few. We don't care about the future. We're spending our future. In fact, we're not just spending our future, the trillions of dollars out there. We're spending our children's and probably their children's future. It's, it's a horrible present-orientedness that's going on. It shows self-centeredness and pride big time. So credit card purchases, loan, national debt shows we're not driven by the future. We just want the comforts right now. Let me tell you the benefits of treating the end. These are just a few more benefits of treating the end as more important than the beginning. 
First, those who do the necessary planning to have the end in mind usually get far more accomplished. And I've definitely found this true in my life. When you've planned out your week, your month, your year, you tend to get far more accomplished. Uh, You tend to be able to do it with more ease of mind. It tends to give you a sense of satisfaction and purpose in life. It helps you realize the progress. You can measure the progress. Have I improved by the end of the year? Most people say, well, I think so, but I don't know how you would tell. Whereas if you've done planning, you can say, yeah, I've made about 60% of the goals that I made last year. Actually, 60%. If you make that, that's pretty good. That's pretty good, you know, because that shows that you're really stretching yourself. Well, it's not always necessarily good. Some people make plans and never carry through. But don't be discouraged if you're really forward-looking and you don't always make your plans. Some of the most aggressive businessmen are that way. They're happy if they make 50 60% of their... Uh, of their goals. But uh, anyway, there's all kinds of benefits. In contrast, those who are always preoccupied with a new series of beginnings that have been posed upon them, usually from outside, they feel like they're in a rat race. They're constantly running from one project to the other. They don't know where they're going, why they're going there, but they know they got to do it. You know, they just feel driven, driven, driven. So those of you who have not been real good at planning, you've probably experienced the theme verse of Ecclesiastes which you all know what it is, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. You just feel this vexation of spirit, this frustration, as you're running from one thing to another. Solomon doesn't care how many neat projects you have begun. His question is, what's your purpose for that? Is it really a good purpose? What's your goal? What is it you're aiming at? Why are you involved in this? Is it just to please people? You've got to be thinking through the end. Now, in doing this, all we're doing is we're imitating God. God is the ultimate planner. From before the foundation of the world, he had a plan, and all of the decrees are part of that, those goals that are leading up to the final goal that he has in mind. And this is simply eschatology. It's all it is. Now, most evangelicals, current eschatology has no cohesion between future, present, and past. Their view of the future just turns everything upside down. They don't see all of history as a part of God's plan to build a glorious future for planet Earth. In their eschatology, the end is worse than the beginning, isn't it? It's exactly the opposite of the Scripture. It's worse than the beginning, and it's no wonder they get discouraged. Now, before we leave point one, let me contrast one other way that people find themselves driven. We've already shown how being driven by the present can lead to the rat race, but being driven by the past can be a problem as well. Most forms of philosophy and psychology today uh, say in one way or another that you have been shaped, you've been formed, you've been driven by, and many of them even say you have been determined by your past. Now, there are a few form, a couple forms of psychology that say you're driven by the present. Um, uh, uh, ego psychology uh, says that um, uh, we are driven by present needs. Social psychology says we're being shaped by both past and present needs and, and pressures. But most psychologies say we're determined by our past. Just think of B.F. Skinner. He, de- he developed a behaviorism, uh, what we call environmental determinism. He says the environment you grew up in totally determines the way that you are. It's almost like training uh, a, 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 of a rat that, um, that uh, his idea was. So on this view, the abuse that you received as a child guarantees your current behavior. And Jesus says, no, that's not the way it is. He says, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. 
John 8, verse 36. Or think of uh, Freud. Uh, he had psychological determinism, this fighting of the id and the ego and all of these social pressures. He said even your potty training when you're a little kid totally determines the way you're going to turn out later on in life. And God says, no, that's nonsense. Or think of Montesquieu who taught geographic determinism. He said, why is it that different, uh, different countries tend to approach things so radically differently. They think different. They act different. Uh, it's so different. He says it's geography. Some people say it's language. And geography? Really? People are determined by their geography? Yeah, there's even social scientists today who have, it's not quite the same as Montesquieu, but they say if you were born in the ghetto, you can't help the, way, the behavior. They just totally excuse the behavior. That is environmental determinism. And there's many other forms of it uh, that are out there. Now, Christians may not have bought into any one of those systems of thought, at least self-consciously, but many times people allow their past mistakes, for example, to determine their future. They're so overwhelmed with something awful that they have done in the past, they're just constantly cringing over the past. And consequently, they're not dealing with the present. Or they're so bitter over something horrible that has happened to them that the bitterness spoils everything in the present. It just totally ruins their life. That's allowing your past to drive your future. God's grace was intended to completely change all of that. All of that. Paul was one of those people who could have been so ashamed by the Christians that he had killed in the past that he, he could have said, man, I just need to back off. People are not going to respect me. They're not going to think well of me. Uh, and, and, and just not involved himself in the church. But he didn't. He, he did not stay hidden from criticism. In Philippians 3, he learned to be driven by the future. He said, brethren, I do not count myself to have laid hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And there are people who are caught in the bondage of sin, and they think they cannot escape from this. It's a hopeless cause. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11 needs to be their theme verse. Whether it's, uh, it doesn't matter what the sexual bondage, because that describes a whole bunch of different bondages that people have had, and it says, such were some of you. Okay, that's past tense. But, what does he say now? But you are washed, you are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so he says, you cannot say you're determined by your past. Uh, his grace uh, calls us not just to repent of our sins, but to believe that his grace is sufficient for everything we have ever said or done. Everything. And this is true not just for our individual lives, but it's also true for our approach to history. Many people approach history and social issues in a pagan way. And they're discouraged about the future of America because of the deterioration we've been seeing in the last 100 years. But God commands us not to be historical determinists, but to be eschatological determinists. Okay, that's just a fancy way of saying that the future determines what's going on in the present. Let me try to visualize for you what exactly that's, uh, that, that's happening. Think of a sculptor. He takes an ugly stone and he turns it into a beautiful, beautiful a statue. How does he do that? He does it because every chisel stroke on that statue was driven by the picture that was his, in his mind of what that stone is going to look like in the future. Okay, you've got a picture in there of, of uh, Mount Rushmore, 
And, uh, you know, to somebody like me, all I see is an ugly mountain in the first picture. But somebody could see those faces in that picture in the future. And every explosion that they wrought on that mountain was taking away things he didn't want to be there and leaving the things that he wanted to be there. Okay? So just, just think of... Um, Imagine an artist making a horse out of a block of stone. Little by little, he's chipping away at the things he doesn't want. He's leaving the things that he does want. And every stroke of that chisel is determined by the picture he's had in his mind. That's the end. Every stroke. Well, in exactly the same way, God's every chisel mark on you is taking away some of the things that he does not want to be there. And he is... He has a, an end in mind, and it is conformity to the image of Christ. And, and to me, this is such an, encouraging, and it's such an encouraging idea. And this is true of all of history. History or eschatology is not the running down of a clock that was wound up. Eschatology is not history deteriorating into chaos, as many Christians have presented it. Rather, eschatology is the plan God had in mind for the world and all that is in it. Every event in history has contributed in some way to the final picture that God is making. Yeah, there's going to be some things that are cast out, but what's left is going to be beautiful. God is in control of history, not Satan. And eschatology is merely the outworking of his plan for all ages. Let me give you a verse. It's Acts 15, 18. Known unto God from the foundation of the world are all his works. In other words, he's working according to a plan. That's what it's saying. He's the great planner. Acts 17, 26 says he has determined the times before appointed. God's plan for our future is what determines what we can do today. He has predestined, Romans 8 says, that we be conformed to the image of Christ. He has predestined for the nations that the Great Commission is going to be fulfilled. And just because... Uh, you know, we look at the nations out there right now, and they look more like the first picture of Mount Rushmore uh, there, and maybe there's some chisel marks there. We don't see a whole lot of progress. does not mean the Great Commission is not going to be fulfilled. It will be fulfilled. This is God's image in His mind. This is the end toward which all of history is moving. So if we are to imitate God, we must be future-oriented and patiently implement our plans for the ages to come. The end of a thing is better than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. So he wants us to have progress in history. He also wants us to be humble. And this is humbling when we realize how far we have to go. Uh, we're not anywhere near uh, the end of the picture that God has. God is driven by future goals. He wants us to be driven by future goals. Now, I spent a long time on this first point, almost the whole sermon on this first point, because it's a really important point. But point two is basically affirming that it's not enough to be driven by and to be excited by the future. We get pretty excited about uh, eschatology, at least I do. I get very excited about it. But we must also be self-controlled in the present. I remember watching a teenager one uh, many, many years ago. I uh, was putting together a balsa airplane. Uh, it was a model and he was following the plans. I mean, he, was, uh, he had plans in front of him. He saw the picture, the end that was supposed to be in view. But he was having so much difficulty getting these pieces to all fit that finally in a fit of frustration and rage, 
I, I watched him. I was just walking by, and he just started smashing that plane to smithereens. So he did not have the self-control to be able to build that model of the airplane. It's not enough to be driven by the future. We must also have self-control in the present. And this is where many people break their New Year's resolutions. They've got a great end in view. Just don't have the self-control, the self-discipline to carry it through. So let's read second part of verse 8 through verse 9. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Do not be hasty with your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. Now, the commentator says that's uh, a word that's just really rich, full. It can mean exasperation. It can mean a number of things. I, I did a word search in the Hebrew and see how it was translated elsewhere in the New King James. It's translated as to dread something in Deuteronomy 20, uh, 32, 27. Hannah was irritated by her rival, 1 Samuel 1, 6. So irritation is an appropriate translation. Uh, it's translated as anguish of heart, 1 Samuel 1, 16. Uh, as anger, Proverbs 21, 19. Grief that a fatherless or victim has when he's been taken advantage of and he's frustrated. Uh, Psalm uh, 10, 14. Vexation over not getting one's way. Psalm 122.10, annoyance, Proverbs 12.16. Now, the common thread in all of those passages is a person getting bent out of shape in some way. He's lost control, self-control, <clears throat> by being frustrated, irritated, angry, annoyed, being vexed, or even dreading something. Now, have any of those things been true of you in this past week? <laughs> so, th that's the problem with Phil Kaiser. He's always pointing fingers, but... Believe me, during the week, I'm constantly repenting because I got three fingers pointing back at me. But have you given up on your exercise program because of the annoyance, there is the Hebrew word, uh, of the discomfort? This is one area that I need to work on. Kathy will be quick to tell you probably I need to exercise more. I used to be very, very consistent, but this is one of the things I want to do in this next year, be more consistent in my exercise. Have you given up on discipling your child in some project and helping them really to, to grasp this because it's so annoying uh, to find them not following through? Um, maybe you're like the teenager who's putting that, together that airplane. You're vexed with how long and how hard it is to follow through on any of your goals. And I think that's a good word picture. I really should have put that picture in there, a kid making a balsa airplane, because that would maybe stick in your mind. Now, he's not saying you can't get angry or you can't get annoyed or irritated or bent out of shape. He says, do not hasten in your spirit to be angry. There are times where it's perfectly appropriate to be annoyed, and this word is used of God as well. And uh, when anger, however, or frustration, or however you want to translate this, is in your bosom, he says. In other words, it's always there, just under the surface. There's a fundamental problem of self-control that needs to be addressed. So when you can handle frustrations without getting frustrated, when you can handle irritations without getting irritated, you can handle annoyances without getting annoyed, wow, have you advanced in your Christian walk. So, you know, all of us have, uh, tend to fall on these things, don't we? But the more we are driven by these principles, the less frequently that's going to be happening. Without self-discipline, all the planning in the world will not help. Now, the Bible gives us a whole bunch of principles on self-control. It's only hinted at here. The word fool, 
If you look up definition in dictionaries, the fool is the person who does not have the, 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 the Holy Spirit giving himself uh, control, a spiritual gift of self-control, not controlled by the Spirit. So when we act, talk, think like unbelievers, we don't have self-control. So I think you can see how all of these points are connected together. If you don't have a proper view of the future, it is going to demotivate you to try hard in the present. If you've got an improper view of the past, it's going to make you discouraged as well. All of these really are tied together. So point three, be realistic about the past. And take a look at verse 10. Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. Uh, this may be counterintuitive to some people because uh, we love history in this church, right? We love it. So why is it contrary to God's wisdom to say, uh, as the saying here he's quoting, why were the former days better than these? I think there's two reasons, uh, at least two reasons. First, it's a denial of the biblical doctrine of progress. Now let me just explain that a little bit. If the former days are better than today in an absolute sense, that means that history is going downhill, right? And if history is progressively getting worse and worse, then it destroys our motivation to really try hard. Because why should, if it's not going to make any difference how hard I work, I guess I'll work it a little bit less. Maybe even a little bit less because I can get away with it. And so it's demotivating. And it rules out point two, flies in the face of point one since it demotivates us from being future-oriented because psychologically it makes us feel that our labors in the Lord really are in vain. They really are. So Solomon says, Do not say, Why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. Now it takes faith to believe that. It takes faith to believe in sustained, compounded growth, whether you're talking about compounded growth of of money or compounded growth of the kingdom. Uh, it takes faith to believe in progress of our sanctification. But whether we're dealing with history or personal ethics, Scripture over and over again affirms the opposite of this pagan concept that Ecclesiastes is opposing. Let me give you a couple of Scriptures. Isaiah 9 says of Christ's kingdom, from the time he was born, it says, of the increase of his government and peace... There will be no end from that time forward, even forever. That's incredible. That's compounded growth of the kingdom. That's nonstop growth of the kingdom. But even the things that happened before Christ were preparing the way for the coming of Christ. It's all working together. So it's another rebuke to those who, who say the former days were better than these. Now, certainly, there are ups and downs in different slices of life, different regions of the world, but overall, in terms of his kingdom, it's upward bound. That's uh, all these chisel marks coming, or the explosions coming on Mount Rushmore, uh, advancing the cause. Now, let me give you just a few examples of this. Daniel uses a word picture of a stone cut from heaven that smashes this, this statue of all of these empires, that are uh, continuing, at the f but it doesn't crumble them to dust right away. It's going to be a long period of time before humanism is replaced by the kingdom. But it says this stone gradually displaces those kingdoms, gradually grows into a great mountain, and finally it fills the whole earth. Ezekiel gives another image. It's a little trickle coming out of the, out of the temple, 
trickle gets deeper and wider. It gets up to your ankles, your knees, your waist. And finally, it's so deep, so vast, nobody can swim over it. And then beyond that, it keeps growing until finally it brings healing to the whole world. Zechariah and some of the other prophets speak of the growth of wisdom, righteousness, the knowledge of the Lord being so deep that it's like the oceans covering the ocean bed. That's how deep it's going to be in the earth. Christ said that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, tiniest seed in their herb gardens. And yet when it grows up, it dominates all of the herb gardens. It's huge uh, by comparison. And he uses the image of leaven that eventually leavens the lump. There are so many pervasive images in the scripture of this gradual increasing growth of Christ's kingdom that it is a rebuke to any eschatology that complains, why were the former days better than these? These three points all hang together. You cannot have one without the other. They all three hang together. If the end is better than the beginning, then the former days can't be better than these. They can't be. They're contradictory. That means that the last verse of 1 Corinthians 15 is true. That verse says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We can patiently persevere. That's point two. Why? Because points one and three are true. Okay, they all hang together. But it's also a rebuke to those who retreat from culture because they're afraid of confrontation. Okay, many Christians are paralyzed when it comes to changing culture. They think changing America is a hopeless cause, so their only social action is to be a prophetic voice against culture. Now, I'm not speaking against that. We do need to be a prophetic voice against abortion and pornography and other evils that are out there. But if the only thing we do is stand in front of the garbage pile and say, that's a garbage pile, that's a garbage, it's not doing anything. You can't beat something with nothing. You've got to replace it with something. And so... We've got to be involved in the hard work of uh, building the city of God. America needs to know where it has gone wrong. But if we give no hope about where America could be or God's plans for the future, we demoralize the, pe- uh, the people. And I just think I've got a whole bunch of books in my library. That by the time you've finished reading, you're so discouraged, you want to give up. It's Christian social critics who are accurately describing what's going on out there, just like the, the, the ten spies. They're accurate, but they're doing it not in the right context. And uh, they're constantly saying, why were the former days better than these? They totally ignore the biblical doctrine that God brings even greater victories out of the apparent defeats and catastrophes of history. I've been reading through Esther recently. Marvelous. Marvelous book. It looks like, oh, woe is me. All is done. We're all going to be annihilated. No, God can use even those things to advance it even further than it had been before. God can do that. Uh, He he could do it today. So here's the question. Are you a historical pessimist or are you a culture changer? But there are other ways in which our views of the past can demoralize us in the present. When we constantly revel in our past accomplishments, we lose motivation for accomplishing anything much today. Say, we're tempted to think, you know, I've done my fair share. I'm going to sit on my laurels. Um, it's proper to evaluate the past, but I, I think it's very important we not make a God out of the past, whether it's our individual past, our family heritage, or even American heritage. I don't know. I've met so many Christians who just say, I, I just wish I could just be transported back into early America. I, I wish I could live back then. I say, no, we don't want to go back. We want to go forward. 
Maturity calls us to stop pining over the past and begin the hard work of making the future better. Okay, America's founding fathers did make mistakes. We shouldn't idealize what they did. I, I happen to think they made the best uh, country, you know, that uh, the West has ever known. Uh, they did a wonderful job, and I love the Constitution. But hey, they did make some mistakes, and if we believe in the doctrine of historical progress, what we do is we say, these are mistakes, these are great things that we really appreciate, and we're going to stand on their shoulders, and we're going to continue to press for continued uh, improvements. Now, let me make one more application. Constantly implying that you, do, you, you did things better than your kids are doing may or may not be true, but let's assume it's true. It's still demoralizing. And again, let's apply this. Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. Why is that true? Because they should, even if you did it better than your kids are doing, they should be doing it better. Okay? They should be doing it better. What you can do is give them perspective by pointing out, making them realistically realize the mistakes that you have made so that they don't make the same mistakes. And tell them, we don't want to reinvent the wheel. Uh, We don't want to constantly... I have every generation having to start off. We want you to be standing on a foundation on education that I didn't get when I was a kid and other things where they can go beyond where we have, uh, where we have gone. Or, or just look at it this way. I think Rodney brought up at the beginning, you know, we're thankful we have computers. I don't want to go back 100 years. I want to have my Macintosh, you know. <laughs> And we won't have washing machines, and we won't have so much technology, and we won't have all of the theological books that have been written in the last hundred years. There's a lot of good stuff that's been put out as well. I don't want to go back. I want to be a soldier in Christ's kingdom, advancing the cause of Christ to the best of my ability. Now, history is helpful when we can learn from it, but when we set up history as a sacred tradition that we dare not improve on, what we're doing is we're discouraging progress. In Shakespeare's play, The Tempest, Antonio said, what's past is prologue. What's past is prologue. In other words, we need the past. Prologues are important. We can value the past, but let's get on with the story. Don't spend your whole life reveling in the prologue. Scattered throughout the book of Ecclesiastes are Solomon's pleadings with his generation to avoid the vanity and vexation of spirit that can so easily keep us from glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. And I think this passage is one of those exhortations. So I want to end the sermon by saying, for 2012, be driven by the future, self-controlled in the present, realistic about the past, and it will spare you a lot of discouragement. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this, Your Word, this reminder. We need this reminder uh, constantly. I know I do. And I pray, Father, that uh, You would help us to have a realistic picture of the past, the present, and the future, that we would not be bound by anything except for Your Word, that uh, we would not be driven by anything except for Your upward call that You have given to us in Christ Jesus. Help us, Father, to be passionate about the things that you are passionate about, to hate the things that you hate, to love the things that you love. And, Father, I pray that this, your people, would grow up into you more and more in all things that you have called them to. We love you. We bless you. We commit the rest of this day to you and ask for your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name, amen.